Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's podcast is with Jim Thompson, the chairman and founder of the Crown Worldwide Group of Companies. Jim started Crown Worldwide in 1965 with a thousand US dollars. Today, the Crown Group is the largest privately owned company in the field of international removals and warehousing with over 265 worldwide locations in almost 60 countries around the world. Mr. Thompson serves as a chairman or as board member of numerous charitable organizations. He is the chairman of the Asian Youth Orchestra, the honorary president of the Society for the Promotion of Hospice Care, and is on the advisory board for the Salvation Army. He and his wife have been building schools and libraries for children in Cambodia for the past few years. Mr. Thompson invited us to the Crown Worldwide Global Headquarters to conduct the following interview. Something we like to ask all our guests is uh, if you have a morning routine, what does the first hour of your day look like? Well, my morning, I do have a morning routine and actually what I do, I used to get up about 6.30 and like most people, I can't resist the idea to check my email, see what came in overnight, (laughs) if there's anything important or not, but... uh, but usually there's not nothing urgent. So my next step is to go into, I have a gym at home, oh, a workout great. room, and, and that's been my routine all my life. So I, I go in, uh, you know, do all the things I need to do, some aerobics, some weights, and some stretches and all that. And at the same time, I watch the news. And okay. so it's kind of a multitasking in a sense. And it's, a, it's really a, a great way. I think you're so full of uh, energy in the morning after a good yeah. sleep. and. And that's the, that's the perfect way to start the day for me. Oh, that's great. Um, another thing that we like to ask our guests is the influences that you've had in your life, yeah. uh, especially at a young age. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, you, 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 you talk about your father a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, what's a piece of advice that somebody gave to you? Like, well, yeah, there's no question that this man, my father, was my idol. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. He, he came from a family. He was the oldest of six his father didn't support the family he had other problems so my dad had to leave school when he was probably 13 or younger even and he had to get a job and uh, he he actually all the money he could make which wasn't a huge amount this was in new jersey he had to feed back to his mother and the kids you know his younger siblings and you know i i looked at this guy when i learned when i was born and grew up and learned learned about him he he had nothing going for him but despite that he had this determination to educate himself and wow. to make something of his life. So he ended up in, in World War II getting a commission, but with no education whatsoever, to get a commission was really quite something. I mean, he was an officer, right. and he served in the Pacific, and then he, he came back. He loved his military career, and he ended up being quite a senior officer at the end. But he, even when he got out of the Navy, he, he started a business career, uh, and he became, uh, you know, a an executive vice president of a company. So I used to look at him as a kid and I thought, wow, this guy is amazing. You know, he was so smart, but it was all self-educated. And that's when you realize that people like him are probably more of a challenge to the the well-educated people because of the determination that's built in. So I, I, I just felt from where he came from to where he got and where he gave us a, a middle-class family and, and, and I got into university in, in California, I thought I, I want I got to carry the can and and take it forward. So there's no question that he he, he taught me by example, and I've never I never fe- uh, 
felt that way about any successful businessman or other, other person I've came in contact because I think it really is inspiration that drives so many of us to do to do great things. Well, your father sounds like a great he was a great, great guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In terms of uh, sort of uh, those lessons that were learned at a young age, so you you find that that gave you the foundation to sort of be the entrepreneur that you are today. Yeah, without question, I you know you have this sense of of wanting to do some to achieve something, whether it's you know depending on what career you're in. I happen to go into business, so obviously success is based on how big a business you can build or how how much money you can make from that business and how many people you can employ that sort of thing. And I think that was really the motivation. I didn't know if I had the capability to do that, without question. You start out, you, you know, you just think, is this something I can do? But if you're driven, if you really, you know, want to achieve something, you find that you learn yes. the steps as you go along. So it wasn't like you have to go to business school to learn that. You learn it on the job. So it was really a, a big influence for me. You did end up uh, finishing school, though. Uh, you, yeah, my my uh, w when I went to uh, college, I went to uh, San Jose State, San Jose which is a, is a uh, state university. It was cheap, and that was yeah. we didn't have much money. But uh, so I wanted to be an engineer. Or at least that's what my aptitude showed. So I went into right. engineering. I actually ended up aeronautical engineering. Yeah. But to be honest with you, I, I never felt um, I never felt excited about it. I wasn't as smart as the guys with the slide rules and the right. technology. And, and so, but, uh, but my dad was, you know, really wanting me to get that degree. First one in the family as far back mm -hmm. ever, please get right. me. So, uh, so I stayed with it. But uh, I found out as the education went along, I was more interested in things like history and, mm -hmm. just, and that sort of thing. And uh, so, um, so I got the degree, but uh, I actually have to admit I never used it. And, uh, I, did learn, I did learn to fly in the process, and, but I didn't, uh, I didn't use the engineering part of it uh, to any great extent. Interesting. So you had a natural curiosity there um, in terms of school wasn't enough for you. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that in today's education system, um, some people might claim that there's room to improve in it, mm. I guess. And, uh, you know, if you're speaking to today's youth out there who is currently in school, um, what are the lessons that you think that they should, or, or the, uh, the industries, or what should they be focusing on, uh, whether they're in school right now or out of school, and where should be, they be learning this? Well, first of all, I think uh, w with the years in university itself, mm -hmm. there's far more than the classroom academic education. And universities provide lots of uh, extracurricular activities, and I really encourage the kids. I mentor a lot of kids in the, uh, here in this room, uh, and uh, I, Hong Kong uh, University kids, and I tell them, you know, join into these extra activities, but also try to travel and see what the world is like, because this, you, whether you travel with your family, whether you do an internship, or just go out with a couple of friends and see what the rest of the world is like, because there's so many different cultures, and now in the world we live in, you've got to understand some of those cultures. Of course, language is, English language at least, is quite important, but, but really once you see the bigger picture, it, it, it makes your education so much fuller. If I could just tell a story about my own sure. life, because uh, so here I was in San Jose State. I had uh, three years of engineering education with one year to go, and a friend of mine uh, from school he said, "Why don't we take a little time off?" Right. So we planned a trip. Originally, it was going to be from California to Europe, but as we planned it over the semester, it turned out to be we went. We actually went around the world. We didn't have a lot of money. We worked in a factory, but we we right. bought ship passage. We didn't take any airplane trips. 
And in that trip, it, it changed my life right. because I, I saw all those things I'd seen in books and magazines and everything, but I also could see these cultures, I could meet people, and as I went around the world from Europe to the Middle East and India and, and ended up in, in Hong Kong and Japan, mm -hmm. I said, my God, this is, this is the thing I want. I found what I want. So I did go back and finish my engineering degree, but all I had in my mind, my last year I was taking history courses of Russia and South America and Japan, and all I wanted to do was get back overseas because there was so much that I had never envisioned that was going to be so important in my life. So I didn't have a, I didn't have a life plan at that right. point, but I wanted to get indul indulge myself in that, that part of, uh, of, 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 of the world, really. Yeah. It was, it was quite a, so it was, as I say, it was a life-changing event because it ended up, I, <laughs> I spent the rest of my life overseas. Wow. Okay. So, that's interesting. So your curiosity brought you back here after you graduated college and uh, you went to Japan. Yep. Yeah. My first stop was Japan and, and the reason was uh, my father was actually stationed there when in the military when he was still in the U.S. Uh, Navy. So I got to visit him when I was 18, that was 1958. So uh, I had spent a summer there, I got a little bit more um, involved with understanding Japan and that sort of thing, but it was only for a summer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the next time I came back, he was still in Japan, he was on this around-the-world right. trip, and I stayed there for a couple of months and, and I guess it grabbed me. I thought, right. this, this culture is amazing, it's only 18 years since the World War II ended, right. The Japanese are very unique people, yes. very, very good people, mm -hmm. but regimented. Yes. But I just felt I, I want to indulge myself in that. So the third trip was back to Japan, and that's when I, when I started my business there, and, and when I was 23, 25. Yeah. Was that the uh, story? I, I think there was something they were, they bought you a ticket back home, but you, <laughs> it was, you didn't want to go back home. Yeah, the story is that I, I actually took a job with a company in, in Yokohama mm -hmm. and uh, the company, I was doing fine, but the company was cutting back and I was one of the, you know, the, the casualties of that. Right. And so they did give me a, a ticket back to the U.S., right. but I, uh, I didn't want to leave, <laughs> so I, I cashed in the ticket and that became a significant part of our startup capital right. when I started my own company. And, uh, you know, had I failed, I guess uh, I would have been, I don't know, asking the American Embassy or something <laughs> to, to get me back, but, but it did work, so, uh, but, but that was, we had so little capital to start with, so right. that was a, a nice little chunk of $900 or something. I mean, that was a very uh, 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 scary and risky uh, uh, decision to make. Uh, in terms of uh, how sort of business worked back then, do you think that you were good at building relationships uh, in order for your business to thrive? You know, that's an interesting point, and I would, you know, to the to the listeners, the young listeners, I would say, a lot of us, I felt I was quite a shy person, mm -hmm. and especially because I was so young in Japan, and so most of the people I had contact with were, you know, senior right. gray-haired executives, and I, I felt, how could I go to them? And I think that the, the answer is networking uh, requires you to sort of be a bit bold, right. you know, and you go up to these people and they may brush you off or they may say, oh, he's a nice young guy or whatever, but you have to make the effort to meet people, exchange a business card, hopefully they'll give you a few minutes to listen to who you are, and, and that, that, that really paid off for me, and I, I learned to do that all my life, even though I wasn't always comfortable with it, 
as I got older, of course, it was a lot easier. But when you're when you're a 25 year old uh, with nothing, <laughs> it's kind of scary. But I think that that's a, that was a very important important part of my success is to just push in and meet people through the American Chamber or whatever organizations I joined in in those days, or where I would meet them. And I think that's that's something young people must learn to do. Don't be overly shy. You know, push forward and, and get to know people. Good advice, right there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, hesitation uh, with the youth uh, when it comes to you know, talking uh, to, to to people. They're insecure. I mean, and I understand it. I was there, so and uh, yeah, yeah. Now, in sort of uh, in the '70s, uh, you decided to come here to Hong Kong. Yeah. And uh, what was the opportunity that you saw there? People were leaving uh, because of the Cultural Revolution, and but you saw yeah. an opportunity there. Yeah, well, what had happened was we we established ourselves in Japan. We'd been there for about uh, fifteen years, and it was a, it was a going concern. We were making money, and and I met another uh, businessman from America actually, and he was doing business with Caterpillar Tractor in Hong Kong, and he invited me to join him, come from Japan, and go down and meet these folks. And when we got here, it was an interesting time, as you say, the Cultural Revolution had just ended. A lot of people had left Hong Kong. And when we look about the crisis today, we, you know, that was, that was probably one of the most scary parts in the late 60s. But when it ended, typical Hong Kong, everything bounced back quickly, and all those executives and more were coming back in to do business in Hong Kong. So we saw that opportunity. There wasn't much in the way of competition here. So we said, what if we invested a bit of money each and we formed a company, which we did. And, and, and interestingly, it's almost exactly 50 years ago. Right. Next February will be 50 years. And uh, it was an immediate success because the service was needed. We were doing it well. And, uh, you know, it was like everything we've done. There's a little risk involved, but uh, I think for... You know, again, for for your young listeners, you have to have uh, you have to have that little adventuresome risk in if in in your soul to do it. But it was it was a wonderful success, and I can honestly say, fifty years later, it's never been a year in those fifty years where we haven't been profitable. So, Hong Kong is the absolute best place to to do business. That's great. And in terms of uh, something we like to uh, speak about with our listeners uh, or with our uh, guests is failure. Yeah. Um, can you think back to a great failure in your, uh, in your career, in your life, and how you transitioned that to current success? Well, my initial answer was that, you know, we, we didn't get here based on failure, but, so I haven't had great ones. But there was one point in, uh, in my career which, uh, which stands out, is that uh, we were about to make an acquisition which would change us. This was in the 82, 81, 82. We were about to make an acquisition of a company in Europe, and that would have changed us from an Asian-based company, because we'd expanded around mm-hmm. Asia, to a global company. And it was exciting, but as usual, we were always short on cash, so right. we had to squeeze all the cash out of our existing operations to, to meet the commitment we made to buy this. And in the process of doing it, I lost direct contact with a lot of my key staff, and another sadly devious gentleman who was my finance guy uh, managed to convince them that things were not good and uh-huh. the company was going to go down the tubes and all this and since I was taking their cash I mean I could understand that they right. would believe that and and as a result a, a large group broke away uh, it was like an overnight massacre from my perspective yeah. I had no idea what was going on and they formed a competitive company 
And I'd say that was a downer from a huge downer for me. And, I, and the mistake I realized later was not keeping all the people that I had informed of. Well, as soon as this is done, we'll be right. we'll be better than ever. And and so they they believed the other guy and they broke away. Uh, I, I I think the lesson from that was amazing because they didn't take everybody. They took key managers, sales and operations and all these key people, but they didn't take the clerical staff, the people right. that you kind of don't think about too much, right. mainly female. And those, those young ladies in our office were so angry about the whole event, right. they started doing jobs they hadn't been trained to do, but they might have heard other, you know, other phone conversations. Right. And so they started taking phone calls and booking orders and doing things. And it was such an inspiration mm -hmm. to think, that these people were almost more angry than me. Right. So while I was probably feeling a kind of down about this and is this all worth it and everything, they actually pulled me up big time. Wow. And we went on to um, bigger and better things very quickly. So it seems like a turning point in Crown. Uh, it was. You, <laughs> yeah, you had good people all up and on down uh, sort of uh, the entire uh, value chain of your staff. You know, this is the thing about you know people in, in a business that if you bring the right people into your organization and you keep them motivated and incentivize everything, you're amazed at the capabilities of those people. And some of them are just sit at their desk with heads down and everything, but they're, they're smart yes. and they're, they're committed. And so I learned a lot about how, uh, how to uh, respect my staff mm -hmm. at, at every level. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's a big important thing for anybody who's going to either work in a company. It, it doesn't, you don't have to be the owner of a business. If you're the manager of a unit of a business, to, leadership is to get the most out of those people. They're capable of so much, but a leader can pull that out of them. And people have different styles of doing it. But at the same time, if you can connect with those people, you can make your, your team better and you can make them better. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've learned and I, I never lost my respect for these, uh, these folks that are you know, doing so much to help a business. That's a wonderful lesson. Mm -hmm. and there's, there's two points there that I'd like to sort of uh, dig deeper in. One you sort of touched on with your management, your leadership mm -hmm. style. But I think the more important point that I think would be a very... Uh, valuable for our listeners is uh, your HR, uh, your talent, uh, because you know these, these, these clerical staff that you were speaking of, they had the potential and they succeeded in mm. uh, becoming uh, what made uh, Crown what it is today. Yeah. So from an HR perspective, when you look for talent, were there any specific traits that you saw in young talent that our listeners could sort of uh, get advice from? Yeah. Well, First of all, let me say that most companies develop a culture, mm -hmm. and some are similar, some are different. So when you're looking to bring people in, you're looking for people that can fit in the culture. In Hong Kong, we're mostly service com companies now, right. so you need people who work well in, in a service culture. I don't claim myself to be a great evaluator of people, but I have the greatest respect for the professional human resource people, because they when they interview, they know who will fit into that culture. And if they pick the right people, then it's, you know, a company can train people to their culture. They, as I said, they can keep, managers can keep them motivated. You can keep them incentivized to, and incentivization is not just more money. Incentivization is making them feel proud and yes. part of the team and part of the culture. Uh, one of the things I would say on the negative side when we look at people are, you know, and I don't like to say nowadays, but I, I guess I have to. It just seems like too many people 
change jobs every couple of years. And we look at that as a negative. We, they may have talent, but you almost know that from the time you bring them in, train them for six months, that they're already looking for their next role. Right. And, and, and maybe they'll make more money, and maybe they'll get a better title, whatever. But the reality is that we like to think that we're gonna get, we're gonna commit to them and they're gonna commit to us for a reasonable amount of time. We don't expect lifers if, yeah. if we're not gonna get them, but you need people who are gonna be really part of your organization for a good, good while. And I think that's, so when I see CVs, resumes, or LinkedIn listings, I think, hmm, I think that person is not going to be around very long. And so you kind of, uh, generally, you kind of give that a, give that a miss. Now, you've, obviously, you've built a really, one of the most successful uh, global businesses uh, here with Crown. Um, when you look back on your career, how much of what you've done in your success do you attribute to luck versus skill? Yeah, luck, luck is always, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that because sometimes we, we do make our own luck, you know, and, and you never know if you made a wise decision or just break. And when we started our business back in the 60s in Japan, uh, we, we couldn't have envisioned that we were entering an era of internationalization, globalization, particularly in Asia, where so many people came to develop their business from the labor, the, the reduced labor source, or just the fact that companies were coming alive. China wasn't part of that, by right. the way, but yeah. certainly, you know, the other Asian tiger companies in, or, or countries. And, and, you know, so in that sense, you could say we were in the right place at the right time. But, but monopolizing on it, in other words, uh, creating a successful business in Japan and they were transferred to Hong Kong mm -hmm. and Singapore, that of course I'd say was skill. But I think in, in, in everything you do, there is an element of luck and we cannot deny that. You right. make an acquisition and if it goes right, you were somewhat lucky to do it. Others, you make an acquisition and you just build it with your own talent. Now that's not luck, that's just doing it right. But I, I would say, I don't know percentage-wise, but I would say maybe 30% of what's happened for us has been pretty, pretty much a lucky break or lucky circumstances. Do you remember specifically that aha moment uh, in your career when you knew that Crown was going to be what it was today? <laughs> you know, I think an aha moment came from the first time someone offered to buy the business oh, because... Uh, that's a good indicator. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought to myself, you're actually going to give me money because we were we were fairly young at the time and as a company and we thought wow you know uh we didn't we didn't think of anybody it had a value in, in that regard but obviously someone else did in, in fact it was it, to tell you the story is quite interesting because i actually progressed down the road of selling it and uh i i I went to California to the buyer to meet the buyer for sort of a formal a final meeting uh -huh. and uh, we knew everything the prices on the table and everything and uh, as I sat in this room with this guy who was from New York and he's kind of a pushy guy and uh, my lawyer who I just had hired recently said he asked for a few more things uh -huh. and this New Yorker guy New Yorker said yeah, you know we don't really need this deal if you don't agree right. and so we broke for lunch I went with my lawyer to lunch, and I sat there pondering, writing on the, the placemat, and I said to him, I can't do this. And so I said, please go back and tell him it's off. So I, he did, and it ended, and we came back. And it turned out the company that, I, that was going to buy us was a listed company, but they actually went bankrupt about five years later, and they were going to 
buy us with their shares, which oh, would have been worthless. Yeah. And that was a that was a big event for me. And it realized, I realized that I, I really loved what I was doing. I wanted to keep doing it. I loved the employees. And to sell out was just ripping me apart. So finally I made the decision not to do it. And uh, yeah, but the aha moment, I guess, was that, hey, we have value. Let's, right. let's keep building it. And from that time, we've always, we've just stayed private the whole time and, and not, not attracted investors or thought about going public or anything like that. We, we're happy with what we've got. We've got enough money to build a business. And, I think you've done yeah. it. You've made the right decision there. <laughs> That's what the investment bankers tell me now after they try to get me to go public. Uh, I mean, if we could sort of go back to there, I mean, because, you know, a lot of the, uh, the CEOs, uh, the politicians that we speak to, they have that, um, I wouldn't say a gut feeling. You had a gut feeling there, huh? Definitely a gut feeling, yeah. I, I just thought to myself, uh, I guess I was never really sold on the idea of selling the company, but when I sat there and I said, in another couple of hours, I'll be working for this kind of nasty <laughs> character, and I said, that's what my life is, is not going to be about that. And, and, you know, part of the deal would have been I had to stay on. And mm. I thought, no, yeah, I can't good. do that. Even if he gave, even if there was a nice chunk of money, it's not worth uh, it. it wasn't worth it. Yeah. So I think that's, that's decisions people make. It is a gut feel or an emotional feel of some sort. And you just say, yeah, hopefully you get it right. Um, now, do you have a, a fear and any greatest fear right now? What keeps you up at night? Uh, not anymore. I mean, you know, I guess the, the issue of disruption, and, and it seems to be more prevalent now than in all industries, and we're not, uh, we haven't escaped that either. I think in the, the whole process of managing, we're, we're a 55-year-old company, and over those years we've seen changes in the way things have done, some subtle and some dramatic. And I'd say right at the last four or five years, the, the technology has changed industries. So whereas we were committed to trucks and people and warehouses and all the things we needed to run a quality business, we're now finding people can do it by just having a website. Right. And so that kind of disruption is sometimes hard to sell against. So we have had to modify our processes, not give up our original concept, but modify them so that we, we have, I'd have to say, fewer people in some areas. Mm -hmm but the same quality of service uh, you know throughout and and work on our brand name but i, I think that uh all companies newspapers everybody have had to deal with this this change and, and we, we've had to change uh, i don't i don't think it keeps me up at night because i think our management are very astute and they see it coming and we make the necessary changes uh you got to make sure you make them fast enough yes and and you know the stories of kodak and all yeah. these people who went who didn't, exactly. and uh, but others have, mm -hmm. and, uh, and 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 that's just part of the management process. And if you're going to survive, you're going to deal with that, and hopefully get it right. That's a classic uh, innovator's dilemma. You don't want to exactly uh, take on your uh, your cash yeah, the, yeah, the people who don't, the people who say no, no, I've got the right model. I'm not going to change, um, unless it, it, they usually end up selling out to somebody else yeah. and just or for the brand. A lot of business yeah. in five years. Yeah, it's 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 a tough one to. For especially for first first uh, level entrepreneurs, you know, because you're so attached to it, you know, so it's hard to, you know, hard to give up your original principles, but but you have to. That's where a good sort of mentorship or uh, management around you, 
would help with that, seeing that innovation. And exactly, and you got to listen to them because uh, you know you can't say, "Oh, I got the right formula." Don't tell me about it. You got to listen to people who are much more astute about the changes that have taken place. Would you say listening was one of your key skills and strengths? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I, I always tell a story about when the early days of it, we. I was trying to buy a truck. We just was starting up and we had enough money to buy a truck. I think we were buying two trucks actually in Japan. The dealer of the trucks was uh, Isuzu and he didn't speak English. So I had two Japanese guys that I was key managers for mine. And I said, well, look, you guys go in and negotiate this truck and make sure you get this price. We can't pay any more than that. <laughs> so the session went on and they came out and they, they got a much cheaper price than I ever imagined. And that taught me burned in my mind the lesson of delegation that yeah. people can do it better than you can right. so I think that you you uh, in terms of listening you kind of learn that you don't have all the answers right. you know it, it could be anybody who in your company who can do the job better than you especially if you're I maybe maybe I'm good at sales but not great at right. finance or operations you got to understand that and not, not try to do everything yourself or you won't ever grow yeah. grow the business so and there's so many talented people out there that want to be part of a team. So, yeah. I think that's a key lesson, especially for your global expansion, is you leave the leadership decisions to the localized teams. Yeah, I mean, there are operations of Crown all over the world, and, and some I've rarely gotten to. You know, they, they, they operate themselves, they know what they have to do, they're managed by a structure we've put in place. And uh, yeah, it doesn't take me. I'm like the ribbon-cutting um, you know, <laughs> guy that uh, they often wonder if uh, I even exist. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, just a few more questions. Um, in terms of, uh, this is the time machine question, if you could go back in time and uh, see the 20-year-old Jim, or even the 20-year-old uh, current uh, future <laughs> leader out there right now, what advice would you give to them? You know, I think, I think the thing is that uh, I guess the key thing is is you have to uh, be patient. You know, a lot of a lot of people say I want to form a business, and of course today mostly technology stuff, apps and stuff. And in five years, I want to sell it for a lot of money right. because you read about that in the newspaper. Uh, my approach might be a bit old-fashioned, but I think you have to really remain patient and just take it one step at a time. I've seen people here in Hong Kong. Uh, actually retired investment or, or investment bankers who set up a nice business mm -hmm. and before they got that even profitable they said I'm gonna do it in Singapore I'm gonna do it in Taiwan and this sort of thing and and, and they can't control it they don't have right. the finances they don't have the management and suddenly it starts to collapse around them mm -hmm. so I think if you're from an entrepreneurial standpoint if you're gonna move forward don't try to you know uh, do too much too fast you just have to take it step at a time and it will come and before you know it, you know, you'll have the, the joy of operating a solid business rather than a fragile one. And, and I think that advice I would give to any young person, you know, if they're, if they're going to go that way. But I think even in a business career, I mean, don't shoot for the moon. There's plenty of opportunity to get to higher levels, but don't think you can make it in, a, in an instant. Mm -hmm. Too many, I think too many people think I want to... I want to achieve a lot really quick right, sure. and then retire. Yeah. And, and some do, so there are examples of it. But the reality, for me at least, was that entrepreneurial work should be thought of as a lifetime mm -hmm. effort. And if along the way you decide to sell it or change in any way, fine. 
but but keep thinking that this is my this is my lifetime achievement. I think that's excellent advice, being patient and sort of deliberate, strategic, foundational steps to uh, building your empire. Yeah, exactly. Just just uh, you know, just too many people I see, even in here, they they're just too anxious to get too fa too far too fast. It normally doesn't work that way. Right. You know, and we're not all Zuckerbergs or Gates or. Ellison's, you know, but but even those guys, I mean, some of those guys are up there now, and you know, yeah, even they're yeah. so they're filthy rich. They, yeah. it's it's taken their lifetime staying yeah. with it, you know. Excellent. Now, uh, yeah, just for sort of a final question that we'd like to ask all our guests. Um, congratulations on Crown Hong Kong being fifty years next yeah, February. Thank you. Um, that actually goes in line with Asia Society uh, being thirty years next yeah. January. Yeah. So the same birthday. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, one of the things that we like to ask our guests, what was your first experience of Hong Kong or Asia, and what do you remember about that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, my trip here, uh, you know, kind of was a real eye-opener right. in many, many ways, just seeing the way people lived and the, the nature of it. And, and I think in, in, in when I first came here, there were people living on the hillsides and in tin shacks and everything, and that kind of, wow, I didn't know people still yes. did that in, wow. in a place like this. But at the same time, it was it was absolutely inspiring to see the place. I loved everything about it. I loved the the way it existed, the way it operated, and so I I just had to come back and soak up some more of that. So as I said, my 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 first trip was in 1958. Second trip 61. The third trip, uh, and those were were to Japan. Uh, well, I I stopped off in Hong Kong at that time, and I just said this is this is something I want to soak up more of. I, I still believe today that we are in the Asian century. Mm -hmm. You know, the current activities in Hong Kong, not, notwithstanding, I have been such an admirer of the city and the way it operates, and I believe that it will bounce back, it will be the dynamic city it, it always is. And so we decided when we came here, and, and when I came here to live, when we set up our company here in 70, I, I thought this is, this is the only place I found in our global expansion that has all the pieces together for a perfect business environment. And we didn't know that China was going to open up. We didn't know that the dynamicism, all the Asian countries were going to come forward. But at the same time, now that I, I can see that clearly, I really believe that this is the place to be for young people. Uh, many opportunities in many countries to, to develop uh, careers, to develop businesses. Um, so my, my impression has always been positive and, and it will never change in my lifetime. We have no intention of leaving here as a headquarters for our business. Of all the branches we have, we have something like 250 operations around the world. Hong Kong has been the best, consistently the best, uh, growth-wise, profitability-wise, uh, and we just do not see that, that changing. The, all, the, all the pieces are here, the freedoms and everything. So. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally sold on, on Asia, I'm totally sold on Hong Kong as the, as the place to be. Right. Well, Hong Kong is a resilient city. It will be back. <laughs> it, we will come storming back. Just, just get us out of the media, get us off the front pages. And I mean, I read today, you might have read too, that it's the, it's the number one most visited city. Yeah. And you know, how do you expect to see that in a year like this? Yeah. And, and I know probably the 
figures from from somewhat of the past, but it will be the number one most visited city again, whether it's next year or the year after. So, well, with leadership like yours, I know Hong Kong's in good hands. And yeah, I mean, thank you. That's very <laughs> kind. But I, I, I think there's a lot of key people here that are actually believers in this place, and I know the Asian Society is is a big factor here in terms of bringing a lot of information and culture yeah. about the the place, and it's it's a great asset to Hong Kong to have that. So. Well, congratulations to you guys too. <laughs> well, it sounds like this sounds like a good place to end off the interview. So we want to thank you for your time again and your wisdom. Well, thank you, Joe. I hope someone will learn something from it. But it's it's been a long, exciting life, and uh, <laughs> thank you. hope there'll be more of it. So excellent. Yeah. No. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. That was it. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is. Uh,